Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Good morning. This is Emily Haig. I'm an attorney in the New York City office of Littler Mendelssohn. It is October 8th, and tomorrow, October 9th, some new laws in New York State go into effect. I'm here today with my colleague, Devjani Mishra, and I'm going to be asking her some questions about these new laws. Devjani, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how Littler was lucky enough to grab you and add you to our ranks this year? Uh, Thanks, Emily. It's great to be with you today, and thanks to everyone who's listening to the podcast. We're really happy to uh, have you with us as we're talking about these new requirements. In terms of my own background, I joined Littler in March of 2018. I was in-house for seven years for a global biopharmaceutical company uh, where I was the lead employment counsel overseeing employment law compliance for about a 50-country operating platform. And so in that role, I had uh, quite a lot of experience dealing with policy rollouts and developing training programs for the workforce. In my current role here at Littler, I am working with companies of all sizes, not only in navigating these new requirements from New York State and New York City, but really helping them solve all types of compliance challenges relating to their workforce and developing solutions that are appropriate to their size and stage of development. And so I'm thrilled to be with you today to discuss something that's been taking quite a lot of our time, uh, but that has really given us the opportunity to interact with many of Littler's clients over the last several months. Okay, and I am Emily Haig. I'm an attorney in the New York City office as well. My background is also a little bit different than the average Littler attorney. I came off of five years as a judge advocate in the U.S. Army. So most of my litigation experience was actually in the criminal world prosecuting sex crimes for the most part. I also had the opportunity to defend soldiers that were accused of sex crimes, including sexual harassment, which under certain circumstances is a criminal violation under military law. And now I'm with Littler, and I am a civil litigator in um, sexual harassment cases and other cases, discrimination and harassment in the workplace. And I also regularly lead trainings in discrimination and harassment across the state of New York. Okay, let's get started. So, Devjani, it's a big time in New York in the world of sexual harassment law. What is going on? Well, Emily, as you know, we've really seen a tremendous legislative response, not only in New York, but across the country to the Me Too movement and the focus that it's brought to sexual harassment, not just as an ongoing workplace issue, but also revisiting many of the ways that sexual harassment complaints or situations involving sexual harassment had been handled in the past. And so what's happened in New York is that in April of this year, both New York State and New York City adopted expansive legislation, which is really aimed at doing a few different things. First, educating employees about workplace sexual harassment. Second, helping employers understand their responsibilities to investigate sexual harassment and take it very seriously. And third, strengthening the remedies that are available to individuals who experience sexual harassment in the administrative agencies of both the state and the city. And so as part of that 
both the state and the city adopted a number of requirements that are, again, aimed at educating employees about their rights, making sure employers understand their obligations with an aim towards reducing sexual harassment overall. Okay, there's a lot going on. You've referenced city law and state law. Tomorrow is October 9th, 2018. I understand some things go into effect in the state law. What is happening tomorrow and what do employers need to do starting tomorrow? So again, as we're recording this, it's October 8th. Tomorrow, October 9th, is the deadline for employers to have in place and distribute to their employees a written anti-sexual harassment policy that covers certain key areas. Uh, it is also the effective date for the training requirement in New York State. Beginning tomorrow, October 9th, all employers who have any employees in New York State, this includes both employers who are headquartered in New York State as well as employers who are headquartered elsewhere but have employees in New York State, will be required to train every employee annually about sexual harassment. This is the most sweeping training requirement in the United States. There are a number of other states that have training requirements and at least one where a training requirement will be coming online. But New York is the first state to require that all employers train all of their New York employees every year. So those are the two things that become effective tomorrow. And a lot of our focus over the last few weeks has been helping employers come into compliance with that October 9th policy requirement. Let's talk about the policy requirement before we hit the training requirement. You stated that employers need to start revising their policy or if they don't have a policy, create one. There's been a lot of hype about the state models. I've heard state models mentioned every day since the, the state put them out. What are these models and what should employers do with these models? Sure. So at the end of August, the state put out a number of model documents in draft form and invited comments from really all sides of the employment bar as well as the broader community of employers and employees seeking comments on whether these models helped effectuate the statute. The models included a model policy, which includes a model complaint form for making complaints of harassment in a workplace, as well as a model training program and some FAQs or frequently asked questions that employers can use to interpret the requirements and understand what it is that they need to do. The model documents were open for comment from the end of August to September 12th, and many of Littler's clients submitted comments. Littler itself also submitted comments on these model documents. And last Monday, as we're recording this, on October 1st, the state published its final model documents. So in the absence of any other regulations or guidance from the state, these model documents really help us to understand some of the aspects of the legislation that were not fleshed out in a lot of detail, and they give us some good guidance on how the state is going to interpret these requirements going forward, how the state is going to look at employers' policies, what types of content it may want to see in employer training, and really uh, gives us a window into the state's thinking in terms of how they will 
review the way that employers respond to complaints when they're made internally. You said that on October 1, the state published the models in final form. So I'm looking at the state model sexual harassment policy. What are the options for New York State employers when considering the model and then considering the seven statutory requirements for an internal sexual harassment policy? What must they do with the model, if anything? And if they choose not to adopt the model, what are ways in which they could use the model? That's a great question, and it's a conversation that we've been having with many clients over the last several weeks. One of the documents that came out at the time the models came out was a very helpful summary of the state's minimum standards for sexual harassment prevention policies. And this goes through basically the eight aspects of policies that need to be included. And for a lot of employers who already have policies in place, not just sexual harassment policies, but overall harassment and discrimination policies, it can be useful to see these eight requirements just listed out as opposed to trying to parse through the statute or trying to parse through the model and compare two documents that aren't really similar to each other to find where revisions need to be made. What we're finding is that most employers who had a policy in place prior to this legislation probably were covering most of the content that's required to be in that policy. The few things that are really new about New York's policy requirement as compared to what we considered best practice prior to now are providing, as I said, the complaint form that employees can use if they want to make a complaint of sexual harassment or other harassment, including more detail about the investigation process that will be used, uh, including how the employer plans to meet the requirement of ensuring due process for all of the parties, both the complainant and the respondent, and informing employees in some detail about external resources for addressing complaints. And that includes both the administrative agencies in New York as well as the courts and also includes providing employees with some information about the types of legal remedies that are available if they choose to pursue a complaint externally in an administrative agency or in a court of law. Employers in California and Massachusetts will be familiar with this type of requirement. There have been a number of jurisdictions that required employers to provide information for the EEOC or for a state agency. New York has now joined the states that are doing that and requiring employers to provide information about where else employees can go to make complaints. And so those are the things that are really new. For the most part, employers who had sexual harassment policies or other harassment policies were covering most of what the state requires. And importantly, for employers who are based in New York City, uh, since September 6th, those employers have already been required to post a anti-harassment poster in the workplace, in the break room or wherever workplace posters are posted, that covers a lot of the content that the state law added. It's a little bit frustrating for employers. We've certainly heard this over the course of the year, that we have two sets of requirements, both from the city and the state, that are coming online at different times and don't always overlap perfectly. But we are finding that an employer who already had a policy in place, who then adds the city poster as required, 
if they're in New York City, will be covering almost all of the content that the state is expecting to be in that policy. You referenced the city laws poster, and I understand that the city requires a poster to be posted in Spanish and English and an onboarding document that looks identical to the poster. Does the city law have a policy requirement as well? Interestingly enough, the city doesn't actually have its own policy requirement. It has this notice, and the notice is expected to be given to every employee at the time of hire and posted in the workplace for existing employees to consult. What we can glean from the combination of the notice and of the training requirement, which will come into place in April of 2019, is some good information about what New York City is expecting employers to communicate in one form or another. And so as we've been working with New York State employers who also have New York City-based employees, we have been working to incorporate those materials into their policies so that they won't have to revise them again. Uh, a couple of the things that are really new or focused on in the city statute versus the state statute are a little bit more focus on supervisors and their particular role in preventing harassment and their obligations to bring complaints forward to HR, and also the subject of bystander intervention. Bystander intervention is something that's gotten a lot of attention as part of the Me Too movement because of some widely reported cases that involved situations where perhaps other people were aware of or even enabled some very problematic workplace conduct to continue, and they did not independently act or seek help to put an end to the situation. And so New York City will be requiring employers starting in April to train employees about bystander intervention and ways that they can step up and take action to resolve a problem. So anyone living in New York City and probably in most other places at this point is familiar with the notion of if you see something, say something. Bystander intervention training is intended to help employees to step up when they see or hear behavior that is wrong and take some action to help diffuse the situation, uh, to object, to report it forward. Um, as anyone who's ever been in-house counsel knows, you can't be everywhere and see everything firsthand. You're really reliant on your HR team, and they themselves can't be everywhere and see everything. And certainly in a workplace where there may not even be on-site HR, let alone in-house counsel, Employers really need employees to step forward and let them know that something is going on so that they can take action and hopefully resolve a situation sooner rather than later, and ideally long before it turns into a matter for litigation or investigation. So, Johnny, you just jumped into some of the training requirements, and you referenced April 2019 when the city training requirement goes into effect. I understand that tomorrow, October 9th, 2018, the state's training requirement goes into effect. There's been a lot of discussion about when employers in New York need to have the training conducted by. Tell us, when do employers need to train their employees? So this has been, as you said, a significant topic of discussion and focus. And one of the most notable things about the state issuing its final models on October 1st was that these models clarified that 
employers have until October of 2019 to complete their first initial training of the workforce. This was really important because the draft models that were issued in August suggested that training needed to be completed before the end of the year, before the end of 2018. And that was obviously uh, very worrisome to the employer community, not because they don't value training, but because in many instances, employers had already conducted training during 2018. In many instances, employers have very busy fourth quarters that are already scheduled or overscheduled with business activity. And so completing training within a three-month period for all of the employees in New York State would have been a massive undertaking. So I think employers were very relieved to know that as we originally thought when the legislation was adopted, they will have the full year beginning tomorrow, October 9th, uh, to complete the initial training, get their training programs into compliance with the new requirements and make sure they're rolling out training in a conscientious and purposeful way that meets not only the statutory requirements, but also their needs as a business. Well, Johnny, you mentioned bystander intervention, and I see it here among the list of eight items that's required under the city law for training. And under the state law, state law seems to have six requirements that we must have in our training. Anything stick out for you in the new legislation regarding training uh, that employers might want to look at their own internal training to see, to ensure that they have included? So I think that a big issue for employers on the training side is not really the substance, because if you're going to do training, um, some of these requirements are very easy. Of course, you're going to explain what sexual harassment is, what retaliation is, what examples of those behavior are. I think the tricky part when you're doing a training, whether it's live or by video or webinar or some other format, is the issue of how exactly you address the uh, remedies the uh, explanation of going to an agency to make a complaint or to a court to make a complaint and how much detail you would include about remedies. I think the other thing that really stands out is that for the most part in the past, statutory required training has been directed at supervisors. Many employers as a best practice, many clients of ours have had training for both supervisors and employees. But in the past, it might not have been typical to provide employees with a lot of detail about supervisors' responsibilities and the way that supervisors can be held liable or disciplined for failing to meet those responsibilities. Traditionally, I think employees were trained about the fact that harassment is unlawful, the fact that retaliation is not allowed. They might not have been given as much detail about the supervisor side. The state is very clearly taking the position that everybody should be trained on that subject. And it doesn't draw a distinction between what training you provide to supervisors and what training you provide to employees. So an employer that is looking at this and deciding what it needs for its workforce may still choose to train supervisors and employees separately, particularly where part of that interactive training is going to allow people the opportunity to ask questions and they want supervisors to have the flexibility to ask questions so that they can better understand the requirements without doing so in front of their own direct reports. But as far as the state's concerned, everyone gets at least this training, including the material about supervisors and their responsibilities. 
Now, Devjani, say I'm an employer in New York State. I'm a small employer, and I produce clothing, and I'm just focusing on getting my next line out. I don't have time for any of this. What am I risking, if anything, by not complying with any of these requirements, not rolling out a new policy, not training my employees? Uh, what can I expect? What do you advise? So, Emily, as you know, lawyers always like to give the answer. It depends. But in this case, I think if an employer isn't going to be able to meet the October 9th deadline, the state is going to respond in a variety of ways, depending on what the reason is. Based on what we've seen so far, the state has been fairly receptive in responding to concerns that employers have raised about the model documents. There were notable revisions between the draft models and the final models. And one of those things was extending the deadline for training because it was pretty much a universal comment that the year-end proposed training date was not going to be feasible for the majority of employers looking at this requirement. So the state has shown some flexibility there. And if you have an employer that has had a policy in place, has had a program in place, um, and just needs to fine-tune that program, we expect that there will be some leeway, especially where an employer can show that it's making good faith efforts. I think where you have employers that may not be familiar with these requirements, and there could be all kinds of reasons why that is. Perhaps it's an employer where most of the workforce is actually based outside New York State, and perhaps there's just a few people or one person working in New York, and there's no physical office location. Perhaps that employer hasn't been aware until now that there was a requirement. But I think if you have an employer that just simply is not making any efforts in this area, not putting up the poster, not adopting a policy, not making steps towards having a training program, I think that's going to be viewed very differently by the state than an employer who is making good faith efforts, who's had some form of policy in the past, who's taking steps to sign up a training provider or somehow to deal with these requirements. And so it's going to vary case to case. Uh, but we do understand that it's only been, as we're sitting here today, one week since the final documents came out. And so a lot of employers are making efforts to comply, but may not be able to meet the deadline tomorrow. And that's totally understandable. Dave, Johnny, you talked about training options. What are some options, and you might remember this from being in-house counsel, to comply with the training, everything from the bells and whistle training that maybe goes beyond sexual harassment to the poor man's option? And what do you recommend employers look for when deciding on a training plan? So I think having been in-house, I love training. I love training on all kinds of topics. And I think it's very important where it's feasible for internal teams to kind of think about their workforce, their industry, their demographics, the particular challenges that are most pressing for them, and build those thoughts into their training. The state's training models that have been published, there's both PowerPoint slides, there's a document, uh, there's a number of scenarios, and ultimately the state will be doing a video that is going to be a decent basic option for an employer that doesn't have anything in place, it doesn't have the bandwidth. But I think there are a lot of options for employers who want to do more than that. And actually, Emily, you've been working on some of those options for Littler. It would be great if you could speak more to those. 
what was really seen a big response from our clients regarding this new legislation, some real concern about how to satisfy the training requirement, especially when it was announced by the state that folks needed to be trained within the first 30 days of hire. That advice has since been rescinded and now it's back to being an annual requirement. But in the meantime, Littler's really laid out both its traditional training options that we've always had, such as live in-person training that goes beyond sexual harassment and covers anti-harassment in general, as well as anti-discrimination. Uh, and those are interactive trainings led by a Littler attorney and it's live, usually in front of a large audience. We also provide that same training via webinar, which means folks can log in from wherever they are, whether it's from a conference room or in front of their computer, and they could be across New York State or even in another state, log on, participate in the training, interact with an attorney from Littler that's leading the training from their own office. And then we've also produced, it's brand new, coming out soon, uh, a new sexual harassment training video. And it mirrors as much of the state model as Littler feels comfortable adopting and advocating, but it also includes a lot of Littler specific training videos, content, um, and also a, a legal summary of sexual harassment and, and dives into that. And that's a 30 minute video to serve as a tool for folks on the ground. So somebody in HR could uh, use this video, lead the training in front of their own workforce and satisfy the new sexual harassment requirement for training. And then, of course, we have the bells and whistle options because we, we've recently partnered with a company, and that's one of those online trainings where the employee engages online, answers questions online, and that's a more robust e-learning program. And then, of course, we do train the trainer, where a Littler attorney will partner, just like you said, to help folks internally craft a training that works for their workforce and targets things that are unique to their workforce, but, of course, also hits the sexual harassment training requirement. Now, Devjani, one thing I wanted to stop you on is you said, of course, folks can look online, look at the state model training, and there are all these resources online. Is there anything in that resource that concerns you that you think employers should hesitate before completely adopting? Uh, another great question, Emily. So I think the training materials are pretty robust, and as I said, they're, they're a decent start. Uh, I think what gives me some concerns is the model policy. And the reason for that is that, again, when you go back and look at the statute or you look at the minimum standards document that the state has put out, it's pretty clear that there are eight requirements that need to be met by the policy. And the way they're described in the statute is pretty basic, and there are no regulations as yet to really go into detail about what they mean. We and our clients are, are making best efforts to interpret those in a way that's reasonable. When you look at the model policy, there are areas in which it is giving useful guidance, but there are areas in which it's really going far beyond what the statute talks about in terms of providing information to employees. And I think an example of this is that there's an extended treatment of the rules for filing complaints, the statutes of limitations, uh, legal doctrines like the election of remedies. And again, as a former in-house counsel, you always want to be careful that your policy language is written in a way that is not just on paper, but is something that the company can really internalize and live by. 
that it communicates information in a way that your employees can absorb and find useful, but also that it doesn't over communicate or over incorporate materials that can be better addressed somewhere else. Something like the statutory process, uh, the administrative agency process for filing a complaint, you know, the rules of the agencies are up to those agencies and they can change and they may well change over the next year as all of the administrative agencies likely see an uptick in the number of complaints they're handling. We're already seeing statistics from the EEOC showing that they've been receiving more complaints of sexual harassment in the past year, uh, which is not too surprising. But what you don't want to do as an employer is be in a situation where you're continually needing to change your policy because some other entity is changing its rules. I think it's safer for employers to provide the information that's required, inform employees that they have rights of redress, inform employees of how to contact these agencies, but really point employees to the agencies and to other resources for what amounts to legal advice. We would not want to see our clients in a position where an employee is saying that they were misinformed by the employer's policy. Uh, that would not be productive for the employer, it would not be helpful to the employee. And given that the overall motivation for this whole set of requirements is that employees should be well educated and accurately educated, I think going into too much detail there is dangerous. Uh, another example is that the model policy goes into very detailed explanations of how an investigation process should work. And really anyone who's worked in this area would know that it, how an investigation should be handled depends very much on the particulars of the complaint, uh, the nature of the allegations, the types of witnesses, um, and the types of documents that may relate to that. And Emily, I know in your former life uh, handling cases as a prosecutor, you would have seen this yourself in terms of how investigations should be handled and the fact that no two cases are exactly alike and no two procedures would be exactly alike. So really, I think in those areas, employers should focus on making sure that if they do have an internal HR team or an internal investigations or employee relations team that handles complaints, employers should really focus on making sure that those individuals are well-trained to develop an investigation practice that is appropriate to the situation and to document it correctly, because that's ultimately gonna be the question. Did the employer handle the investigation properly? Rather than outlining an investigation process that may work in certain cases, doesn't work in others, and creates uh, difficulties because employees view those steps as potentially a promise that all of them will be followed in every case. To round up, Devjani, we've touched upon this new law that really just hits a slice of what you and I do every day in the world of employment law. Can you contextualize all this, this new legislation, as employers head into 2019? Sure. Uh, it's always good to, to wrap up with a long question, <laughs> or at least a question that needs a long answer. I think you know, we've, we've really bombarded folks with a lot of information about these requirements. There's been a lot of discussion, and I understand that we're going to include in the notes for the podcast links to the various client alerts that we've done on this. 
but really over the course of 2018, we've had a lot of focus on a fairly narrow aspect of the employee experience, which is sexual harassment in the workplace. What we don't want employers to lose sight of while they're trying to get their policies in line, while they're trying to secure training, uh, while they're thinking about all of these requirements and all of these dates that are coming up, we don't want employers to lose sight of the bigger picture. You know, these models and policies and trainings are all aimed at this narrow issue of anti-harassment. And where employers really should be looking is the broader goal of a more respectful workplace. And think about how to fit this into your overall diversity and inclusion efforts. Think about what other types of training maybe aren't required by this particular statute, but are things that your workplace needs. And again, that can be a function of the type of workplace that you have, whether it's remote or in-person, the industry that you're in, the demographics of your workforce, the particular recruiting challenges you're facing, and honestly, the experience that you've had in the past with complaints. All of those things should be informing where you want to go as an employer and the type of culture that you want to develop. So yes, there's a lot to comply with here. There's a lot of requirements to meet, but don't lose sight of the bigger goal and think about how to use this training as an opportunity to have important conversations with your employees about how to have a productive and respectful workplace that meets everyone's goals. Thank you, Devjani Mishra, for joining me. Uh, as we've discussed today, today is October 8th. Tomorrow, October 9th, in New York State, new sexual harassment legislation goes into effect, and employers across New York State will be putting out their new sexual harassment policies and starting to implement their new sexual harassment training program. If any employer out there in New York State has questions, including Littler clients, they can feel free to reach out to myself, Emily Haig, or my colleague, Devjani Mishra, and ask us any question that's on your mind. We are located in the New York City office of Littler Mendelssohn, the largest employment law practice in the country, and we are here to help you comply with these new exciting laws on sexual harassment. Thanks again for joining us. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.